Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we spend time with Mark McCabe, who is the founder and partner of Nomad Capital, a seed stage fund based out of Dublin, Ireland, that invests in seed stage companies in the US and Europe. Mark, thank you for joining us today. I usually start by asking about your fund, but I think your kind of story is so integrated into what you're doing as a fund that I'm going to start by asking about your background and how you came into the tech industry and then came into being a VC investor. Yeah, for sure. Happy to. And thank you both, Jenny and Thanasis, for having me on for this. My story in tech, I guess, like many, involves a good degree of luck and fortune along the way. As you can probably hear, I'm not from the U.S. I'm originally from Ireland, although I did live in the U.S. as a kid. And weirdly, that kind of was the genesis, I guess, for me getting into tech. I moved over when I was a young kid. And that experience fostered in me, one, an obsession with computers at a pretty young age, a chance to use them in school, a chance to play around with the early internet, and also through playing Little League Baseball, meeting a number of the young kids who eventually would go work in tech. And some of these friendships were how I initially got my chance. I had been working at Google in Dublin and had wanted to move into venture and was able to get an internship with a seed stage fund in the Bay Area called SV Angel. Very well-known seed fund, like one of the premier seed funds before seed was like a trend, right? Yeah, absolutely. Ron Conway is considered the godfather of Silicon Valley. And that was an incredible experience to get to work with him. When I moved over for the internship in 2010, it was really just before the start of this wild bull run that we were on for so many years. And I think the year prior, Facebook had done a down round, which would be hard to conceive, certainly up to last year, maybe this year you might conceive of it. But during the course of that internship, I had a few really notable experiences. One was on my, I think it was my second day working for SV Angel, we went to go visit the Y Combinator class of summer 2010. And that was me totally hooked. It was just this transcendent experience, getting to meet all these founders in one place, these super ambitious, super young people, building tools that I wanted to use and was just really excited to geek out on with them. I worked pretty hard during the internship. They offered me a a gig full-time After that, I ended up spending a year and a half with SV Angel. But during that time, I had started to ask myself, like, where do I see a career in venture going? And I could see it going very far, but I felt there was a lot I wanted to do still as an operator. Having had that experience a little bit at Google, I wanted to get more experience and hopefully make myself a better investor. And the one company I was particularly obsessed with was Airbnb. And I'd met the founders through SV Angel. And I'd actually been a host on the platform relatively early on. San Francisco is an expensive place to live. I can vouch for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And not only that, actually, when I first moved to the Bay Area, I had no credit history. So getting a lease was even a challenge. So hearing the pitch for Airbnb was, you know, it just hit me at this perfect time. And I ended up joining them at the very end of 2011, spent seven years at the company. I was their first BD hire and then went on to start one of their verticals, Airbnb for business. When you went into Airbnb... Did you think that it had the potential to get as big as it is now? Or how did you think about the opportunity side? So I had been obviously in the VC world. 
And the VC world was an interesting place because I think a lot of them saw the power in the growth of Airbnb that it was already experiencing growth at that point. I think when I first met them, they were giving us an update and it was like, we think this thing's working. We might do 2 million bucks in bookings this year. And I just thought that was incredible. I couldn't believe that many people were renting out their rooms. And again, obviously great VCs were investing. Sequoia led the seed, Greylock led the A. It wasn't like it was completely off the radar, but I also could see that none of these VCs really fully believed in the product because none of them would use it. It was still a pretty strange notion to sleep in a stranger's bed, in inverted commas. And my kind of reaction to that was a lot more people sleep in hotel rooms than in these strangers' beds. And and that I, as, a, as someone who loved to travel and had backpacked quite a bit on my own, had worked in philanthropy, so I'd traveled to some pretty remote places as well prior to Google, I just saw really huge potential in the business. Did I think there would someday be millions of hosts? Did I think the company would ever be valued at $100 billion? I couldn't be sure. Although I remember while still at SV Angel, meeting Joe Gebbia at South by Southwest at a small informal party that Airbnb were throwing. And he looked at me in the face and said, this is going to be a $300 billion company someday. And I think what really motivated me about it is it was easily the most fun tech company that I could see out there. Like I wasn't that interested in e-commerce in finding new ways to buy things. But to go and stay in a loft in Brooklyn was something that I couldn't do without Airbnb. And to have some of the experiences I did early on in the platform where legitimately just gave me a completely different experience of visiting a new city. Yeah. What's at the top of your Airbnb experiences list? Oh, that's a really tough one. Okay. It ends up sounding cliched now because everyone stays in tree houses and castles and weird things in Airbnb, but this was in 2014. So I had been working at the company two years at this point, And my wife and I went to go stay in this tree house in Belize. Mm-hmm. And it was on a farm. And it was the whole family were involved in the running of this business. And they had a few tree houses, they had a main building, and then they had this large kitchen building. And in the kitchen building, it was open air, you would sit there in the morning and they would prepare these like really incredible tortillas that I've yet to find anything considerable or comparable mm-hmm. since with this like black refried green on top of it. And it was just incredible. But then they would also then take you on horseback. And what was quite cool is the proprietor had previously been this kind of local information source to archaeologists so he knew the local land really well and archaeologists would consult him when they were going to do digs Mm -hmm. and so he knew where a lot of these old digs were and he would take people on horseback to go to these digs occasionally stopping to recite poetry (laughs) i know wow Wow. like cliched almost it sounds at this point but it was this truly incredible experience it's like kids came on the ride with us they were on their own horses they were pretty young as well they were maybe eight and seven eight and six something like that Mm -hmm. And they were riding their own horses along beside us and easily one of the most memorable trips I've ever been on. Yeah, no, that sounds incredible. I feel like you're going to go back sometime soon because the way that you describe the tortilla and the beans, I just, I feel it. I think you're overdue for a visit. I am. It's a little bit further than it used to be, but I should go back. Yeah. What was it about venture capital that really drew you in? So I think when I first started learning about VC when I was about 18, 19, again, like I was saying, as a teenager, I'm getting into this nascent internet and it leads me to the meta side of it, like the internet talking about the internet. And 
one of these paths led me to, to Dig Nation and I used to watch their video podcasts. And this was really when I first actually learned about what a VC was. And so from the very start, I'm hearing from, from Rose and from Albertson, like how venture works and how these ideas eventually get to this mass platform where everyone knows about them. And I think that's kind of what excited me most that venture presented this like really believable path to help dreams come true, to help people spin something out of nothing and not just something, but like something that was global, that was hugely impactful and it could happen incredibly quickly. And I think really what drew me to venture is just the first time I started really interacting with founders and seeing what they were putting on the line and what they were willing to risk to build the businesses they were building. I know we went around a little bit, but you were about to say, so I know you have your own fund now, Nomad Capital, which obviously you're going to tell us about, but did you, so you went back to Airbnb, you went to Airbnb, I should say, and then talk to us a little bit about that and then how you transitioned to your own fund. So I joined Airbnb in the summer of 2011 and actually about two years into the journey or maybe even less, Alfred Lin took Sequoia's seat on the board and only a few months after he joined, he asked me if I wanted to partake in the Scouts program. And I think I was probably one of the few people at Airbnb who'd previously worked in venture and in that way, I was a fit for the program. But for my time at Airbnb, and I'm sorry, Alfred, I was a terrible scout. Like, I was so heads down in what we were building and really bought into the cult of Airbnb that I made very few investments as a scout during my time. I'd made one investment prior to joining Airbnb, which was in a company called Intercom. And it's during kind of the latter years of my time at Airbnb, the Intercom is really taking off. And it's strange to explain this, but it's almost impossible to believe that the companies you're investing in seed as a young investor are truly going to turn into these enormous companies. And I really felt like that. Like I believed that venture returns impossible. I'd seen Ron's historical investments and I knew how successful he had become at doing this. To believe that the next generation of companies were going to follow suit, that this was going to continue was just really hard for me in my kind of mid to late 20s to fully buy into. But Intercom was kind of this thing that pulled me along with it. And as Intercom's success continued, I started rethinking about investing again and left Airbnb at the end of the summer 2018. And I did a couple of things. One, I started a consultancy shop where I was helping founders raise capital at Series A and beyond. And two, I started investing some small funds with a friend of mine, Brad Flora, focused around Y Combinator. So we would raise a dedicated fund for a YC batch, put it to work in that batch, and then rinse and repeat over and over. And really, both of these things were incredibly inspired by Ron and my time at SV Angel. Like... The Series A side was something I'd fully cribbed from what he was doing at SV Angel. He would take a number of portfolio companies under his wing every year, and he would completely orchestrate their rounds. And that's what motivated me to start that. And then on the fun side, it was really just an excuse to stay involved with early stage companies, to, to have a reason to beat them, to support them in some way or another. One thing that I had certainly done at Airbnb is built an incredibly valuable network of operators also of investors, we had some pretty interesting alumni in the past that they went after Airbnb. And I just wanted to be involved in a number of different ways in ways where I felt founders really needed support and fundraising in particular was one of them. It's this incredibly asymmetrical process. Founders, maybe if they're experienced, they've raised capital four or five, six times in their life. That's an experienced fundraiser on the founder side. Whereas VCs obviously do this every single week. 
And I think they often don't get some of the language that investors use. They don't know how to read necessarily the true level of interest in what they're building. And I think also they're so deep in the weeds, it's quite hard for them always to position the high kind of strategic value of what they might be building. And in those ways, I wanted to continue to serve them, but also gain experience by seeing more of these rounds and understanding how they worked and operated. And so that takes us to the end of 2019. And I'd been in the Bay Area 10 years at this point. My wife and I decided we, we'd had two small kids in the Bay and we wanted to try and give a shot to moving back to Ireland. So we moved back December 2019, about a month before the pandemic started. And um, Good timing. You know, pandem- pandemic hits in January, February, and I'm long a travel. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I'm catching up with a lot of people that I'd met during my time in the Bay and They're in all these different places. None of them are in the Bay anymore. There are palm trees in the background of Zoom, snowy mountains, and the penny really dropped that it just doesn't really matter where you are anymore. And this is probably going to be one of the legacies of the pandemic. And that's when I decided to start Nomad Capital. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. It's a reference both to obviously my remote nature in Ireland, but also to the journey that founders go on and wanting to be a a glass of water or an oasis along their journey. And I think you've kept the fund sizes small, right? Which I think is, is that still the strategy? So talk to me a little bit about that. And I think that's a little bit unique, right? In in the world these days. Yeah, so... uh, The fund is pretty small. It's a $10 million fund. There were a few reasons for that. One was uh, actually one of of the people I find really inspiring in this industry is Gary Tan. His first fund was seven and a half million. And I remember saying to myself, if that was enough for Gary, surely 10 will be enough for me. But also I was moving continents and I was in a completely new market. Um, new geo, new people to meet and work with. And I felt that size of fund would allow me to be most collaborative, to work with the widest variety of funds. And secondly, I believe in walking before you run. I I also believe investing at sea stage is, is like walking on black ice. And really what I wanted to prove was that I could essentially professionalize the angel investing and small fund investing I'd done previously and start to build relationships at the same time. Is there a company either within your respective portfolio, previous investments, or just general within the VC ecosystem that you're aware of that if we were to roll back time a little bit and you were in the same scenario of joining Airbnb that you'd want to join now? Yeah, I guess my anti my anti employment portfolio it really has one name on it, and it's Stripe. So I was interviewing with John and Patrick around the time I was joining Airbnb, and ultimately didn't get the offer. So it wasn't really something that I passed up. But I was very close to it. I would have been, I think, the ninth or tenth employee at Stripe. But truthfully, I couldn't get as excited about payments as I could about Airbnb, and I right. was really just focused on getting my dream job at Airbnb. But it, it was a fascinating interview experience and getting to know both those guys during that process and during my time at SV Angel. And it certainly would have been a pretty good one to have joined that early. Do you think you'll ever want to go back into an operator role? Um, my wife says there's absolutely no way I could. She <laughs> thinks venture has destroyed me for all future operational roles. I do think about it. I think the grass is always greener. And the one thing about venture that can be quite frustrating at times, someone who has worked in a tech company and helped build businesses, 
is how disconnected you are from the success and outcomes. 99% of what happens within a company are the people within it. And certainly sometimes you can see things you might have done differently, opportunities that you thought were very large that don't get capitalized on. But I think over time, that lure kind of grows. And you've seen this in venture. You've seen folks actually move back into operating roles or even this kind of dual operator plus VC role. I'm someone who tends to focus and to try and only do one thing at a time, or at least one type of thing at a time. But yeah, I I could definitely see myself eventually going back into an operational role. I just need another five, 10 years in venture, probably. So you spoke about the pandemic changing kind of our business. Do you really think that companies will be built in many different locations? And now you obviously see, you, you always had teams that were distributed, but now it's even getting more more widespread. Do you see that being the status quo going forward? And how does that change how you look for opportunities or what you look for and the opportunity set? I think it really depends on the type of business. Yes, there are certain kinds of business that absolutely just transcend geographic borders. I don't think it really matters necessarily where those businesses are built and particular software businesses. I think we've seen now that there's a significant portion of the talent universe that want to work remote, that will consider employment across geos. There's now a huge suite of tools to help you hire and employ this team in a number of different ways across geos. I think we're even seeing benefits to asynchronous work, having different team members in different time zones. So there's a lot of really positive reasons. And I think, to be honest, it's a moot point at this point. We've seen enormous companies emerge from regions from Latin America, US, Europe, not just say the largest countries in Europe are the largest GDP countries in Europe. We've seen huge winners come from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, and we've seen also winners in, in Asia and Africa. So I think it's clear that large tech businesses can be built across the globe. I think certainly when it comes to consumer businesses, especially consumer businesses that have like operational playbooks, there's maybe an advantage or definitely an advantage to starting in a larger geo, one which is governed by the same language, same regulatory frameworks, and that makes some businesses harder to scale in Europe. I certainly see some types of companies that might start in the UK or France or Germany, and you can see that like they're going to be focused on their domestic markets for a while, and that just gives time for competition to form in some of those other domestic markets. But when it comes to software, SaaS software, I think really the global market is in play nearly immediately. The business world is certainly a dominant English-speaking world outside of China. And I think it just doesn't matter. Really what matters is the caliber of the founding team, their ability to attract that certainly matters a lot more than where they're based and where they're on their computer. How has your background within each of the respective companies that you've been in and also as a previous investor at SV Angel, how has that shaped what you're looking for in a company and your criteria set, how you counsel founders? Without a doubt, the biggest impact it's given me, the biggest impression it's put upon me is just around the dynamics of the founding team. And I think Airbnbs was a very special founding team for a number of reasons. You had three very different personalities, one more analytical, one more logical, one more, I think, certainly ingenious, maybe is the right word, and one who would stop at nothing to see a company succeed. And I think those three people, those three personalities were so interesting because They gave a lot of different kinds of people a role model at the company. 
And we attracted a really wide variety of different characters, but certainly people who were at least unified by this love of travel, this appreciation of cultures around the planet. And that made it both very eclectic, but also very diverse in a way of thinking. And I think that was super powerful. While the founders were different in their own ways, they were clearly incredibly passionate about what they were building. They were willing to go to extreme lengths and, and work extreme hours to make the business successful. And not only that, but they were willing to do it on an idea that I think, again, while there was investor interest, a lot of people thought was quite novel, that it right. was this novelty essentially early on. And so that's that I'm not, I'm never going to find Nate, Joe and Brian again, but I look for this compliment. I look for this passion. I like, I look for people who really want to work for each other. I look for people who really know what they want to find in the team around them as well. And so I think that's probably the biggest influence it's had on why I invest in startups. Is there a company from your current portfolio that maybe you want to highlight and just give us the story of how you came upon it and what drew you to the founding team and how it's done? Yeah, there, there would be a lot. I think if I had to pick one that, that I think is a great story, it would probably be and open. It's an Irish company. I don't do a ton of investing in Ireland, but it's a really fascinating story. And I think it shows some of the resilience and ingenuity that I look for in teams and and open actually originally started as a gift store in dublin and when airbnb was setting up their office here in 2015 they reached out to the team and, and asked if they could help prepare these gift boxes for the kind of nascent host community in dublin and airbnb was going to announce their office and they wanted to involve the host community in it and open said sure we are happy to do that and during the discussions they discovered that airbnb was actually looking for a global gifting partner and open bravely put up their hands and said, we can do that for you. To which Airbnb responded, that's really sweet of you. You're this gift store in Dublin. We need someone who has a global logistics network who can gift people as easily in Delhi as they can in LA. I don't think this is going to be a great fit. And the and open team went back to the drawing board. They actually found this guy, Ross Shannon, who's now their CTO and asked him to scheme up how they would catch up to some of these new startups that were entering the corporate gifting space. And they submitted a proposal to Airbnb, which they actually, which was remarkable in and of itself. But over four years, Airbnb was their exclusive customer. They scaled up entirely on the Airbnb platform. And what was really wild is they learned so much from this one customer. They learned that Actually, the, these gifts were not just a kind of marketing tool or maybe a tool to resolve issues affordably. They actually might even be like a high ROI tool. The guests who were gifted for some reason or another had a much higher likelihood of rebooking in the six months afterwards. That hosts who were gifted tended to stay on the platform longer. And in 2020, they finally started actually branching out, seeking out other customers. And after four years as a startup with zero funding, they raised their first round of capital. And it was a really amazing round led by First Round Capital and Local Globe. And it was just incredible to see this team come from this really humble, creative beginning and hustle their way to, you know, most folks rate their seed round within a year or two of starting a business. Four years is definitely not the norm. That's a great story. Shifting gears a little bit. I asked this question on, I think, every podcast that we've had as of late, but the market is obviously on, on top of everyone's mind right now. What are your thoughts on the current market environment? If you had to maybe predict what's going to happen, especially near term what are your thoughts there? And then uh, lastly, what advice have you been giving to founders? 
Oh, predicting the markets, I shouldn't even dare to do. I think one one belief I have, it's not incredibly sophisticated. I feel that there's potentially more pain to come that I don't, you know, it feels like 2020 and 2021 were this real time of hubris. Once we got over the initial shock of the pandemic for the tech sector, it was a real time of hubris and valuations rose beyond long held norms. And I feel like everyone's still hoping that we're going to go back to that. And it's that kind of general sentiment in the air that makes me feel that there's worse to come, that we haven't fully learned our lesson in a way of looking at it. But I'm very lucky that I get to invest in businesses incredibly early on. Of course, there's a knock-on effect. If funding slows down at Series E and D and pre-IPO, this has a knock-on effect than the other rounds. And those rounds are not too far in the future, but I still get to look at the venture industry with a much longer lens. And I think there may be one of the reasons that I'm still quite optimistic, despite the market conditions we're in, is actually something I heard recently from a Sequoia partner. I was at one of their scout events this summer. He talked about how one of the, actually the highest performing fund in Sequoia history was started in 2009. And I think really the lesson there is that sometimes in the bad times, what you tend to see is people doing this for more altruistic reasons, starting companies for more altruistic reasons, just because they really want to and not because there's tons of capital available and that it's this really soft fundraising environment. So I think hard fundraising environments actually can, can create a really exciting investment ecosystem. And, and so, that's something that, that I'm very much leaning into at the moment. And then for founders, the obvious thing is investors are responding to completely different signals than they were a year and a half ago. I think it's all been said in terms of efficiency and efficient growth, and this is now the new mantra. But I think what I tell them is you have to focus on the same things you always had to focus on. You have to build something that people desperately want to pay to use. And that is the only benchmark really for startup success in my mind. And in that way, the goalposts have not moved. Maybe just people more can see them better than they could before. I appreciate hearing your outlook and your advice to founders. So quick question before we move to the standard questions at the end. What, as you look forward, are you planning to keep up kind of raising small, these small funds and leveraging your network to get in super early into a number of opportunities? Or do you want to scale up? Do you want to make this into a firm with more partners? How do you think about your future? Most of my thought process around this is how I can keep aligning what I do best with something that that really helps and supports founders. And yes, there's certainly a temptation to raise a bigger fund, to potentially lead seed rounds in maybe in a more constrained investing focus than I've had previously. But the joy that I get out of this is from being incredibly broad and from meeting as many teams as I can. And truthfully, I can't ignore my own personal motivation in doing this job. And so likely I'll certainly keep writing the same check size. I think it's a check size that offers founders the chance to meet a lot of, of good lead funds. It's a check size that even allows them still to, to work with angels and with friends and family that they want to bring into rounds. And that's really important. Like I want the founder to be aligned with what I'm doing as well. In terms of fund size, like for the kind of checks that I write, typically in the 100 to 300K at seed, I think really, I think more in terms of what's the right number of investments in a portfolio at this risk threshold and my previous hit rate that'll allow me to return to LPs. And so from a fund size per perspective, that's it's a completely different thought process. But right now they align pretty well. Like 
I think if I was to raise a 20 to 30 million fund and write the same checks, I'm really reducing the, the ROI for my LPs. I'm reducing the risk as well at the same time. And I think I found that somewhere between 50 and 60 investments of this nature is the right model for me. So if I was to raise a larger fund, I think I'd have to rethink the strategy. But one thing I do see is certainly founders wanting to continue the journey with me beyond seed and a chance to continue investing in future rounds is pretty appealing to me. So shifting into our four standard questions segment, our first question is the National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? So this is the hardest question of the four. It's definitely the most serious of the four. Maybe. Yeah, I don't have a huge amount of opinion on the regulatory environment. My career really started in the US and having also experienced what it's like to invest in various parts of Europe, I feel like the US does it best. It's easily the most, most flexible. It supports the widest range of moves and investing types. And it also has this incredible infrastructure of, of different kinds of investors, funds that want to invest in funds, understanding of venture and its place in the investment landscape. And I think that's obviously really changing a lot in Europe. But if there's one thing that I think I've seen a few times, it's just about opening up access to more individuals. And a lot of that's been influenced by my time working with the AngelList platform. Throughout the years, I've had different friends maybe even outside of tech who've asked me like how they could get more involved and how they could make investments. Some of the requirements around self-attestation and investor qualifications make it really hard for them to invest small checks. Certainly on the mm -hmm. fund side, there's pretty considerable administrative burden if you have over a certain number of LPs, which of course makes you more likely to consider larger checks versus smaller ones. There are structures, there are loopholes and ways around this. There's ways to raise roll-up vehicles. And I think those things really freeing investing. So certainly like opening up access to more people. I think another thing that I'd love to see change is greater, so greater degree of flexibility on access with, within venture, but also I think within employees and the equity that they hold. I think there's just so much waste on that side. I, I have friends who who have left operating roles and been faced with such a tight window to exercise that they walked away with zero shares. And these are people who put real skin in the game and, and missed out on, on really life-changing opportunities as a result. Equally, I've seen people waste away at companies where they're miserable, largely for the same reason. And while there's been an opening up of funding around this, there's plenty of people willing to give out loans. And some of these products feel outside of the norm. They feel quite risky. And I really applaud what we've seen from companies actually like Airbnb, who really lengthened the exercise window. So they allowed us a seven year exercise window. This was a change that happened about halfway during my time at the company. So it went from three months to seven years, which made a huge difference to people really just either aligning with the business or not. And then having the right people focused inside the business. Equally, what Stripe have done, I think, is really interesting in kind of making first a number of secondaries available to employees, but also in, in changing the structure of how they issue grants. I'd like to see a greater degree of flexibility for employees. And I think it would be really cool as almost if I think of the handover of equity as this huge signal. Like I think most VCs do. If Keith Raboy all of a sudden wants to buy secondary in, in a tech company, I think everyone's going to pay attention. Everyone's mm -hmm. going to, that's going to actually increase the value of that stock almost on its own. 
And so I think there's a lot of valuable signal to be gained out of how we think about equity, but it's incredibly illiquid, it's incredibly locked up. And so that, that's another area where I think there's maybe room for innovation and change. Great. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? And can I take a guess and say that it has something to do with a guitar? Unfortunately, I never quite had the talent to follow the guitar full time. And I certainly put in the hours, but no, it wouldn't be unless talent is not important as well. Then yes, probably rock star. But no, honestly, if, if I feel very fortunate to be in the position to do what I do. It's not really an easy thing to do when you have, you know, it's a very high risk job. And I truthfully do this because I think it's the coolest thing I could possibly do with my time. To get to hear every New Year's generation of founders tell you what they believe in and then see those acted out over years. Now that I've seen 10 years of it, it's one of the most addictive things I could have ever imagined. It feels like you're this small observer on history and maybe in, in a very geeky businessy sense, but certainly I feel like over the last 10 years, I've seen things that were really transformative and changed how my friends in Ireland, my friends in France and the UK live their daily lives. And so I can't really think of anything that, you know, with no responsibilities that I'd rather do. But I think certainly one thing I'd like to do is probably spend more time with my kids. I think I get probably more, they're one of the few things that I get more joy out of than this job. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So it sounds like obviously number one, you'd be a VC investor. And then number two is between either being a rock star or operating tree houses. Yeah, I'm trying to start a band (laughs) with my kids and this is hopefully going to make all of those things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Bundled solution. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? So I mentioned his name already, but certainly Alfred Lin. And I have a number of reasons for why. He's a brilliant person, like incredibly intelligent, incredibly generous with his time. Like I have submitted 25K scout checks into Sequoia and I will get like a phone call from Alfred the next day wanting to debate the merits of this startup. And this is someone who I can't imagine how low on the priority list of things my 25k scout check is for him, but it's super low. And yet like he really enjoys the process of doing this. He's also not polemic. Like you're not really going to see him tweeting or blogging. He gets on with his work. I've seen him be immensely valuable to a lot of founders. He has incredible operating experience as well as investing experience. So he's done it all and he's maintained relationships, like really strong relationships with people like spanning the whole length of his career. And I've seen that firsthand. And certainly if there's the one person I'd like to emulate, it would be him. That's great. I have a lot of respect for him too. Number four is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Okay, so it's it, this is two parts. And this one I'm going to credit to Ron Conway. Two lessons that I learned from Ron that like have been immensely invaluable to me throughout my career in a number of different things. One, Ron was easily the most transparent boss I ever worked for. Ron would share information with us that patently we felt it was wrong for him to tell us at times that he didn't need to share with us for us to be particularly good at our job, but he knew that we would get considerably better if he was very open with information that he was learning and he was choosing to empower us and trust us. And that was something that I carried kind of all the way. In my early Airbnb career, I didn't have anyone under me, but after sort of about the second year, I started building a team 
And I like immediately I just thought back to this principle of like, how can I disclose as much as possible to the team, but in a way that they now feel like they have the right information to do their jobs better and also to feel like I'm someone who wants to include them, who feels like they're as responsible for building something successful as I was. So that was lesson number one from Ron. And then the second lesson was a bit more direct because he used to say it outright quite regularly. He would maybe meet someone that he hadn't spoken to in six years and now they're starting a company and Andreessen wants to fund it. And Ron is this incredible networker, but he's a very genuine networker. He doesn't do it. Certainly not clear to anyone on the outside that he's doing it just to network. And he would say it regularly that Silicon Valley is a very small place. You do not know where the people you meet today are going to be in three, four or five years time. And you need to have that in your mind every time you meet someone. And yeah, those two lessons from Ron have given me more than everything else probably I learned at SV Angel. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and enjoyed learning about you and Nomad Capital. Thanks so much for having me and to listen to me drone on. Much appreciated. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.